one time after completing competition for a project that we call the Shotgun House that has several Duchamp doors embedded in it, uh, we were approached by two curators for the Hammer Show, which is a kind of biennial art exhibition of Los Angeles and other artists here who thought that it would be interesting to include, include an architect team among these artists. And they asked us, what would you do if we gave you this opportunity to participate? And we were just blown away and we were so excited. And we said, whatever you want us to do. And they said, no, 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 you have this opportunity to be in this show with all these artists. And we we're asking for everybody's pitch for their projects. What would you do? And we said, well, whatever you would like us to do. It was like this Eddie Murphy scene where, you know, we were jumping on one leg barking. Of course, project was dropped. We never participated in the show, et cetera, et cetera, because the expectations were a little bit different from everybody involved. But I, I think that that's a little bit our attitude as well. And it is an authentic one. We really think of architecture as a kind of service to whoever it is who is paying for it. I see the disappointment on your face. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I totally I understand. I just kind of like, holy shit. Hi, I'm Marika Trotter. I'm history and theory coordinator and faculty here at SIAR. This podcast is about contemporary architectural issues and attitudes. It's organized by theme, which means that we can have the option to connect unexpected things together and maybe rethink, just by juxtaposition, how we approach things within architecture, but also how architecture approaches things outside of itself. This episode is about authenticity. We'll hear from art historian Jenny Lin on the culture of the authentic copy in Chinese art and its relationship to the reality behind that Made in Italy label and luxury fashion goods. Next, Kay Alado McDowell talks to us about authorship, artificial intelligence, and opening our minds. Finally, I talk with Anna Niemark, design faculty at SciArc and principal of First Office, on why she took inspiration for accessory dwelling units from ancient forms. Jenny Lin is Associate Professor of Critical Studies at University of Southern California's Roski School of Art and Design. Her first book, Above Sea, Contemporary Art, Urban Culture, and the Fashioning of Global Shanghai, is a cross-cultural study of art, architecture, fashion, and film created in and about cosmopolitan Shanghai. So I'm so excited to talk to you today, Jenny, about your research into the strange connections between Chinese labor, Italian high fashion, the American consumer, or maybe even the global consumer, and maybe the relationship between, let's say, a real Gucci and a fake one. The research project that you're referring to uh, is a a kind of forensic dig into the relationship between Chinese artistic production and um, Italian fashion brands and European fashion houses. So it actually started um, in my first project, which was about contemporary uh, Chinese art in the city of Shanghai. And I noticed then that a lot of the artists that I was writing about um, had close collaborations with European fashion designers. Um, so there's a ceramicist named Lu Jianhua, for example, who's done a lot of collaborations with Christian Dior. Um, and there's also Bottega Veneta, the um, Italian uh, store that had a gallery in Shanghai, which featured some of the most edgy contemporary art of the time. 
So I started looking into this and then I um, became really interested in the ways in which the whole construct of made in Italy fashion uh, is very much supported by Chinese laborers. So um, in fact, there's this town uh, outside of Florence called Prato in Italy that is an old textile capital. And it is renowned for its made in Italy couture fashion, um, but it's also home to one of the largest populations of Chinese migrant laborers, primarily people that are working inside uh, factories producing this made in Italy fashion for top designers. Is there some reason why this labor force is being used as opposed to the local population? You start seeing the influx of Chinese laborers into Prato in the 1990s. So it's amidst globalization and a general downturn of artisanal labor and uh, upscale ateliers now that are now competing with the made in China fast fashion <laughs> brands. So um, you start getting these Chinese laborers that come over um, to produce the fashions for the companies at a much lower rate. And soon after, um, the Chinese laborers, who are quite entrepreneurial, would start up their own um, businesses, and then a lot of the companies would outsource to them. Uh, so there's a whole kind of network of Chinese workers that are making the made in Italy fashion. So I'm just so curious about the, the legal and maybe even kind of the international framework here. So it seems like these Chinese migrant workers are coming in with the skills to meet a demand at a lower price. It's just a matter of them being willing to work at a lower price point, but still within the legal uh, wage range of the EU. Yes, uh, that's right. So I would say that the prices that they are getting paid, the wages that they're getting paid to the Chinese workers um, are under what would be the typical wages that an Italian tailor would make, but above what they would make in China. So it's uh, very tempting for these uh, laborers to come over and make that oftentimes dangerous move to Italy. Um, and then when they set up their own factories, um, they oftentimes are not adhering to the legal guidelines of the EU and of Italy. Um, and this has been a real problem. There's been, sadly, fires and, and deaths in some of these spaces. Um, there's been a pseudo attempt by the local Prato government to crack down on this. But at the same time, uh, they do appreciate uh, the way in which it's expanded their labor, uh, their, sorry, their um, marketplace um, and their economy in a time of relative downturn for Italian fashion. Because Italian, the Italian population is an aging population. Yes, right. There aren't enough young people uh, that are born as Italian citizens to Italian parents. So I'm thinking that this influx of, I assume, younger, energetic, hardworking Chinese laborers is probably necessary for the sustainability of the industry as a whole in Prato. I think it's really remarkable too, to think about the relationship between this labor force. So basically you're getting a piece of clothing. The clothing is um, made of Italian material, in quotes, um, tailored in Italy, but the labor is coming from uh, China. So it's almost like you're buying something made in Italy and you're assuming that there's a certain 
set of practices and procedures and standards and even ethics that go into making that clothing that may in fact be entirely different from the reality. Yes, that's right. And I knew of several um, Italian brokers who would be going and buying leather from China and importing it back into Italy for this uh, Italian material, as you say, uh, in quotes. <laughs> and, um, and then there's also rumors of other fashion companies doing things like having their product almost entirely made in China and then sending it for the last button and the Made in Italy label um, to be put on in Italy. So I think yeah, we can't make any assumptions about what the Made in Italy or um, you know, Made Anywhere <laughs> label necessarily connotes. It's so interesting that what you, the, the degree of authenticity that we might have once innocently assumed in a less globalized economy needs to be radically uh, investigate. You said you call it a forensic examination, and that seems right. It's sort of getting underneath what we'd like to think mm -hmm. and looking at the situation on the ground. There's one thing that I've heard of. I don't know if you've come across this in your own research, which is that factories that produce genuine articles, often for the highest and most um, elite luxury brands, will then turn around. It would be the same factory but maybe they're working in off hours or in the evenings, often with the same workforce uh, who will then go and make fakes. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and there's even instances of having um, overruns in which the luxury brand produces too many of a certain item and then you know, maybe they were going to burn it, but <laughs> they actually get sold on the black market as fakes. Um, so it's some t in some cases, they're nearly indistinguishable or not in are not distinguishable at all from the original, um, which, yeah, is a very interesting phenomenon. You are trained as an art historian. So it's a little bit unique that you've taken on this research in the in the fashion world and the world of business to begin with, I would think. And I'm wondering if what you're asking, how do we value the authentic, the authenticated, versus the really well-made kind of clever fake uh, has something to do with the larger arc of your research into cultural production in China. Yes, it absolutely does. And, you know, this stems historically from the, the differences between the way that artists are trained in China and elsewhere and the values that are placed on artistic production and creation. So um, in China, if you are to study traditional Chinese painting, ink painting or calligraphy, you would copy for years and years and years uh, from the masters. So that's, you know, classical calligraphers, um, Song Dynasty landscape painters. And it's not until you are able to um, master that forgery that you can then be said to have accomplished the ability to make your own, create your own artwork. So, and people really prize these forgeries and, and these cop that what we would think of as forgeries or copies or um, not real versions. Uh, so for example, uh, there is a famous modernist painter named Zhang Daqian, uh, known as the kind of Picasso of China. Um, and he's known not only for his amazing ink paintings, but also for his copies and his forgery. I, I guess you have to ask at what point 
beyond the um, perhaps narrow Western values associated with authorship and authenticity, who cares? It's an amazing painting. Yes. And there's, you know, there's uh, the capital of uh, painting uh, in China is in Dafun Village in Shen. It's called Dafun Village, Dafun Sun in Shenzhen, uh, right across from Hong Kong. And this is known as the world's capital of export oil painting. Um, and they may, are known for making copies of all the great, primarily Western artists. But it's interesting to to look at what those artists, many of whom are copiers, <laughs> many of whom were trained in art school, um, studied art, think about their practice. They don't necessarily think of it as just copying or making forgeries of these originals. They think of it as kind of harnessing the creative spirit of these original artists, and then they're able to transmit it onto canvas. So. Harnessing the creative <laughs> spirit. That's an amazing way to think about it, because um, even in the, the Western tradition of art training, um, and I'm thinking also about my own field of architecture, often the best way to teach somebody is to get them to copy, because in copying, you start to see nuances. Every time you go to a fine arts museum, at least I, I, it used to happen and I hope it happens again, you see some earnest student there copying some detail from a masterwork. And if you also look at the way in which the Chinese culture in general values historical monuments. Um, it's they're not wrapped up, in, or, or they do not romanticize ruins whatsoever, typically. So, if you see um, some remnant of a previous dynasty that has decayed, they will simply add on to it <laughs> and rebuild up and repaint and try to make it look as close, you know, to the how it once did as to now. You don't have uh, the, the fierce kind of debates about preservation um, that you see in, in the West. So, yeah, it's a, it's a different um, way of seeing in many ways and a different approach. So knowing what you know about Chinese fashion and the uh, the Chinese laborers that are actually doing a lot of the work that we associate with European fashion, Italian high design. Would you buy fake? I have bought fakes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just admit it. I have bought fakes. Um, I'm impressed uh, by the way in which you know the fakes can look as good. But I think also for a newer generation, there's a devaluing of the luxury brand. And you know, I think why I don't ex- aspire to have a $5,000 Louis Vuitton handbag. It makes me wonder um, whether this fusty um, value that we give to authenticity needs to be radically rethought in, uh, in, in our Western culture as well. And, you know, I, I've heard before of the, the power of the fake, or maybe it's more like different understanding of what it means to have something be authenticated. I think one of the root kind of like etymological definitions of the term authenticity is actually that it's it's an authorized thing. It's like an authorized copy, not an authored thing, but an authorized production. And it seems like in this way, somebody who is able to perfectly reproduce 
a Song Dynasty ink landscape on silk scroll or a coach bag or um, a uh, Van Gogh painting or <laughs> whatever yes, right. um, it is is their work would would be absolutely authentic in that old sense um, and that maybe are clinging to some kind of strange link between individual authorship and authenticity is um, a, a false or a narrow or um, even a, a kind of a, a, mechan- a, a false or a narrow um, concept, but also a way to maintain a, a, a radically unequal and unjust status quo in the world. You get the luxury good because you can afford to pay for the the world the way it is. You don't get one because uh, you don't have access to that kind of wealth. And that's the way it's going to stay. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that was too heavy. (laughs) And, you know, in in the field of art, let's say just American contemporary art, you see this kind of experiment. I mean, will we see it, you know, with Dada taking the urinal and making it an artwork um, or taking, you know, um, uh, a picture of the Mona Lisa and doodling the mustache on it, right? The the ready-made of the historic avant-garde is kind of already experimenting with this and questioning in art, authenticity, originality, the Chinese artistic tradition seems to be much more about an authentic honoring of a tradition. So when we see in the West, it's always kind of tongue-in-cheek. Right. And there is a sense, even though these artists are no doubt very sincere in their questioning of authorship, it's their name that's attached. You know, it's Duchamp did the did the right. journal. Yes. <laughs> you know? That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. And whereas in the Chinese cultural context, it seems to me that it's about the honoring of a legacy, the honoring of a tradition. I, I went to go see the Terracotta Warriors yes. <laughs> in Xi'an, and before you are allowed to go in and see the Warriors, um, which you know has become a UNESCO heritage site, French government had a lot of help in um, uh, preserving them and uh, rehabilitating uh, certain warriors. But first you go in and you see this model a really incredible model of all of the terracotta warriors because you're not allowed um, access to all of the underground passageways. It was a tomb for the emperor, right? So it's um, certain places are closed off and it's kind of gaudy. There are a lot of flashing lights also and like excitement, but I was just thinking about that experience that I had going to see the model before the real warriors is in many ways as authentic as you know, the warriors themselves, right? It's all about how you relate to it. And for me, it, it taught me a lot more about the Chinese tourist industry and uh, the ability to make these miraculous miniatures of, of the warriors. And uh, you know, it was just, it stands to me as, as, as authentic as the, the warriors themselves. And the, the terracotta warriors are an interesting take on authenticity because each one is individual. Right. And yet together they form copies of yeah. each other. Yes. Yeah. 
oh my gosh, we're so profound. <laughs> Derek and the Warriors. Yes. We had to, we just we had had to wrap them in there. Oh my God. This is Jenny Lin's new book, Another Beautiful Country, Moving Images by Chinese-American Artists, will be on shelves in 2023. Next, Kay Alado McDowell, who leads the Artist and Machine Intelligence Program at Google Research, explains what it's like to co-author a novel with an artificial intelligence called Generative Pre-trained Transformer 3. When does not having sole agency in the creative process open the door to a more authentic engagement with the world? This is an episode on authenticity and the notion of authenticity uh, in culture and um, in your own area of expertise. And I was thinking back to that conversation we had a while ago about what it means to co-author with an artificial intelligence. You have some personal experience with this. Yeah, so over the summer of 2020, I spent two weeks in a state of deep immersion with OpenAI's language model, GPT-3. What is a GPT-3? What does it stand for? What is it? It stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer, and Transformer refers to a specific um, technique for structuring the neural net. Um, it's the number three is because it's the third generation. Uh, it came out the year before and was very impressive. I had worked on a few writing-related projects, one of which uh, was a collaboration with Ross Goodwin, who has a poetry practice and a writing practice, screenwriting practice with AI systems that he trains himself. And um, I remember seeing GPT-2 and being really impressed. Uh, I actually saw the paper that it's called A Little Attention is All You Need, and that um, paper was described the first kind of transformer model. And um, I remember seeing it a couple years earlier and being like, this is crazy. What's going on? They, had, they were able to predict uh, to generate full length Wikipedia style articles um, that were internally coherent. And they would make up like these stories about people that the articles were about. Uh, but when, well, when this first Transformer paper was published, I remember thinking this is a major breakthrough. And then a couple of years later, um, GP2 came out and people were buzzing about it and they, they published a short story that I had written. But then it wasn't until a year later when Iterate Model came out um, and there was this program for people to use it that I was able to play with it. And it was an order of magnitude larger and um, just very different in terms of the consistency of the text. I have, I've been teaching a course and having students write with GPT-2 and they're, they're also getting really interesting results. Yeah, over the summer of 2020, I spent two weeks with AI's language model, GPT-3. And I started writing more diaristically and in a more type essay type format and poetically and um, in a variety of different ways. But I started by putting in these longer prompts and basically co-writing journal entries or diary entries and essays with the system rather than kind of querying it. And um, what I found was that the way that the predictive algorithm completed my thoughts, so to speak, or extended my thoughts or augmented my thoughts um, quickly became collaborative because it was bringing things to the surface that maybe I hadn't expressed or it was inputting um, references that I hadn't considered uh, consciously, at least. 
And in that process, uh, new thoughts were being formed. So I would spend in this two week period, I would spend, you know, a few hours writing, take a break, write some more. And then in the evening, I would just live my life, go to sleep and have dreams sometimes about what I was seeing, or I would think about what was coming out of the text and, you know, bring in new source material. And I became a kind of memory um, between the sessions because the system didn't remember what happened from session to session, but I did. So in that sense, the authorship of the book really belongs to myself and the system. I would not have had thoughts if I were simply writing about these things on my own. The book is called Pharmaco AI. And when you talk about the experience of writing, you do talk about it being this kind of deep um, dreamlike or hallucinatory experience. Were there other substances involved in the process besides just the kind of dream AI synchronicity? It just so happened that the weekend um, between the two weeks that I was working on it, I did uh, consume some mushrooms. And um, I'm not going to say that that was necessarily like a huge part of the experience of working with it, but it was definitely on my mind while I was in that experience thinking about what was happening with uh, the AI. And so I bring that up just to, to sort of paint a picture of one, my own way of working with intelligent non-human entities, and uh, two, to sort of suggest that the future that we are approaching with impending legalization of, for example, psilocybin, a resurgence in the clinical understanding of how these plants and fungi and substances affect us. Um, combined with AI, you know, I think we're entering a really interesting and strange time, and maybe those signals aren't really super clear in the mainstream culture, but all of the pieces are there for those to come together in a really uh, interesting way. I would imagine that the kind of authorship that you participated in and really orchestrated in that in that book, Pharmaco AI, is almost the opposite of the classic understanding, at least in the 20th century, of what authorship means, that one has total control and that the output is completely uh, from one brain, one perspective. And your version of authorship seems to me to be deeper and much wider and just very, very open. Yeah, I wonder if it's really true that this is the notion of authorship that we actually have, or if this is that authors have, rather, um, or if this is, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess I wonder if it's true, if, if authors really think think about authorship in this way, because there are some cliches and sort of tropes around uh, fiction and writing characters and things that, you know, at a certain point, characters take on a life of their own, or the plot sort of uh, generates itself, or this hallucinatory aspect where the the inner world of a, of a consciousness, of an author's consciousness, begins to generate its own events or its own properties. We have to think about users in relationship, people in relationship with each other and with space and with their and so that kind of influence is inevitably going to surface in texts that we produce. We're never really writing alone. Even though the act is often done in solitude, it, we're writing from an embodied relational perspective. And the more ecological our consciousness becomes, the less we're able to see ourselves as separate from that. And is that where you see the real value of AI in, in cultural spheres as a broadening of that understanding out to the ecological scale? It's, I think that's the greatest potential of AI is to reveal patterns that 
force us to think outside of our individuality. That would be, you know, one of the best outcomes that we could have with it. Um, and how, you know, whether that or not that comes to pass has a lot to do with how the systems are designed and to what purpose they're applied. I find a lot of value in admitting that I, there are a lot of things I don't know and allowing there to be an unknown aspect of reality. Um, but how we balance uh, that unknowing with uh, what we presume to know is kind of critical in how we design a model of the world that we then deploy. Yeah, I think that's very well put. I, I've often found that moments of great philosophical clarity come from moments of deep humility um, in, in the mm -hmm. face of not knowing. When you were collaborating with GPT-3, did you ever feel like you developed a friendship with that technology or did it remain to you an instrument? to be improvised? Well, I think as a musician, I feel like you one often does have a friendship with their instruments. And, you know, it's like um, country singers will write songs about their guitars and stuff, you know? And uh, so I don't, I don't think that those are mutually exclusive. You know, I, I'm struck listening to you and hearing you talk about this process of co-authorship that your name is the only one on the book. You list yourself as the author of the book. Yeah, that was a deliberate choice. And it was something that we discussed, the publishers and I. There was one really kind of dumb reason, which is that it just fit better. Another more considered reason was that I felt, having been um, you know, a supporter and collaborator with many AI artists and seeing their work and their relationship to, their, to the systems they use, I felt that I should be the responsible party um, in terms of how the work is represented and manifested in the world and that I should sort of be accountable for the words in there as the sort of final editor. I didn't want to, I didn't want to hand over too much of the responsibility to the neural net in terms of authorship. Thirdly, that GPT-3, um, you know, as a system to write with, I feel systems like this will become very commonplace. So, you know, I don't think, I'm not aware of there being the first novel written on a word processor or on a non-linear editor. I don't think like people really think about things that way now. And I, I, I kind of think in the future, people won't think much of these type of uh, collaborative writing systems as exceptional, um, you know, at the point that they're integrated into our writing tools. So it, it felt like it would probably not age well, but I really just wanted to be responsible for everything that was in it. So it's it, so interesting. It's almost the way that you're talking about it. It's almost like someone taking on full culpability or blame. You said you made a couple comments along the lines of, well, I don't think that um, a distributed AI wants to be saddled with the authorship. I, you know, it, it sort of a, a sense of a sense of respect, maybe, and a and an intuition of intent that I know you said you didn't feel like you made friends, but certainly there there was a sense of reaching out towards something else and developing a certain kind of rapport. Yeah, definitely. I would yeah, I would again return to the idea of a musical instrument because you know, as a musician I do I played a bunch of instruments and I feel a strong like affection for them. Um but more more as important is the music that comes out and the way that certain instruments do help you create you know they limit what you can create but they also enable you to create certain things can anybody can anybody work with a gpt3 is it available for the world it's not widely available. Um, it's still kind of, you have to apply for it. Anyone can apply and it's really unpredictable in my experience, you know, what the criteria are to get approved. 
Um, but you can write with GPT-2 and the students I've been working with are writing with it. And like it does produce a different quality of text. Um, it's a little slower, um, but I found it's just as helpful for you know expanding your ideas or kind of thinking through them or having this kind of experience of writing. When you said GPT-2 is widely available and I thought, well, I'm, I'm now I'm obligated to go find this thing and start working with it. I, I realized I had a well of terror rise up inside of me at the thought of not being totally in control or not being able to sustain the illusion of being totally in control of the direction of an argument or the position that I might end up uh, taking or or even espousing. Just speaking personally about the approach, I, I really also am very controlled in my writing and um, have a hard time sometimes getting into like a state of flow unless I've found a way to really just like let go um, and I kind of need like a cliff to jump off of and so this was like a this was a good cliff to jump off of um to to lose control and then once I did control then it was really about just like surfing the the energy of these sentences and like seeing where they went and that to me felt really good actually well I that's a that's a cliff that I'm glad you flew off of and I'm I think if anything we need more of that uh cliff jumping attitude in our culture Kenrick McDowell's novel with Generative Pre-Trained Transformer 3, Pharmaco AI, is on shelves now. This is The Ark, coming to you from Cyark, Los Angeles. Act 3. I talk with Anna Niemark, design faculty at Cyark and principal of First Office, about how the dolmen, a Neolithic edifice composed of monumental standing stones bridged by a single stone roof, might be an authentic reference for small-scale housing built of thin structural panels. So Anna, I wanted to talk to you about this new initiative that has come out of the mayor's office here in Los Angeles related to accessory dwelling units. Um, well, these are small homes that would be built in the backyards of Angelenos. And first office, which is uh, myself and my collaborator, Andrew Atwood, uh, we were invited to participate in this program by Christopher Hawthorne, who is working with uh, the Mayor Garcetti office to come up with new initiatives to densify the city of LA, to offer more housing across the city. So it's an interesting program and it was very exciting to take part in it. I think these ADUs are what we used to call granny flats or granny units. The idea being that you have space surrounding the main house on an individual property and you can now go and develop a secondary uh, dwelling for people that you know or people that you don't know that then becomes available as part of the housing stock of Los Angeles. And we know that Los Angeles desperately needs more housing and specifically it needs more housing for those with lower incomes and uh, for those who uh, might not be able to afford the rents of a typical uh, apartment unit or might not be able to buy a house of their own with the way that the market is here in the city. And then I'm guessing from what you're saying that the idea here is that with pre-approved ADU packages from first office and then also from other offices that have also participated in this initiative, individual homeowners, individual property owners would be coming to you to say, I'll take one of those. And so this is an initiative that stays within the private sector, but it's been somehow streamlined or facilitated by the public, the public governance of the city. Is that right? 
That's I, I think that's a good reading of it. It's, um, you know, I have, I guess, my reservations about like capitalism and how private development can fix a lot of our public problems. This program, as you say, exactly, um, homeowner would have to put in quite a bit of their own initiative, their own money and their own kind of interest behind the project. And it would require that each plot of land is developed on an individual basis, one house at a time. It's very different, uh, let's say, to a kind of top-down program or an approach to social housing that would be developed from, let's say, a mayor's initiative with a different type of program in mind. Um, and, And I think in many ways, there are other programs that Hawthorne has looked into, including, I think, a recent project for low-rise, high-density housing competition that results should be published pretty soon from multiple architects here in the city um, to try to understand different ways of developing this thing. So this thing, m- meaning the city of L.A. that desperately, desperately needs more housing. Um, and so, in other words, I think we're all interested in multiple and parallel forms of development that would happen both from the kind of private sector, but also maybe from the mayor's office. We'll, we'll have to see what, what happens in the future because um, the Garcetti office is launching something from what I understand is called LA's Green New Deal program. And they're really interested in more construction across every sector in, in the city, including, of course, also infrastructure. So we'll have to see what happens. This is just one small program, I think, among many. Traditionally, we've worked at the intersection of arts and architecture, Um, and have done a few works um, that range from models to installations to gallery interiors um, and a kind of exhibition design. So this is really um, the beginning, I would say, of our engagement with the city, with housing, with thinking about social problems, um, as well as those that pertain to kind of more artistic side of architectural production. Well, let's talk about that, because, of course, it's not just that you developed this ADU kind of pre-approved package. And I understand uh, a little bit of the complexity involved with having to have multiple variations that work with multiple situations so that this thing can be as flexible and readily deployed for as many separate uh, uh, circumstances as possible, which is a whole kind of both a bureaucratic but also just a logistical challenge that certainly rises to the level of design thinking. But then in addition to all of that, there's the look of the thing. There's your aesthetic as it manifests in this little potential, this little bundle of architectural potential. And I see resonances here in your ADU design with some of your other work that I'm familiar with. In specific, I'm thinking about a gallery show that you had here at SciArc called Rude Forms Among Us, still one of my favorite gallery show titles ever, in which you filled the gallery with what appeared to be an ancient Neolithic structure, looked like maybe it was a dolmen, And it was made with a very non-dolmen-like material. Uh, I think they're called structural insulated panels or sips. So you had this impression as you walked in of something very large, a very large form, kind of barely contained, sort of crouching in the tight space of the gallery. And then as you got up close, you realized that you were looking at it made out of maybe the architectural equivalent of foam core, something very, very light, something very, very modern, and something planar, not massy, not volumetric. Could you talk about how the one project, the ADU project, 
might draw from or relate to the the project in the gallery, the rude forms among us? Absolutely. Um, Marika, you bring up an important relationship between a more abstract interpretation, a project about interpretation and construction, and how it links up to a project less about interpretation, but about a kind of open-endedness of construction and its ability to really become multiples out there in the city. So I'm really glad that you bring out root forms. Um, the show is called Root Forms Among Us because these um, dolmens, as you mentioned, that were the model for the show are um, prehistoric monuments that were made of rude stones rather than hewn. And so they were called uh, rude stone monuments uh, by the kind of archaeologists and anthropologists who were looking at some of these things in the 19th century. So we simply borrowed the term rootstone monuments and kind of transformed it into a kind of play on words within the architectural show, root forms. Um, and among us just means that they're still among us. These are structures from 6,000 years ago uh, that date from 2000 BC. And they continue to populate our landscapes all over the globe on every continent. So um, to bring that, and I, I think you're calling that process of uncovering some of these structures and looking at them carefully, a kind of authentic process of really like trying to understand what it means to be confronted, um, confronting a structure that we know was woman, man, society made, um, but now in our own landscape, in today's kind of uh, landscape. So. For sure, that was a real inspiration, let's say, a word that I also don't use very often, but an inspiration for the show nonetheless. And so, of course, uh, the idea of kind of translating now the material of stone into a kind of contemporary structural material became this idea of the SIP panel, the, the structural insulated panel, which is a kind of ice cream sandwich of a OSB, a kind of plywood, a cheap uh, recycled plywood, that kind of laminates a piece of EPS foam, an insulation, a piece of insulation in between. Um, now, in, um, in the gallery, that uh, was a kind of prototype for construction. And so, of course, it became, um, it, it made sense, simply, um, to kind of think of it as a prototype also for the houses uh, that were pre-approved. And so I would say that um, we didn't so much pre-approve uh, five houses, but we approved five plans, which is to say they include the structural insulated panel as a part of its construction. And that was the feat, I guess, with the collaborator Matt Melnick to try to understand how to actually pre-approve a uh, prefabricated panel that is used actually quite often, but, but not the standard building material. So a standard plan with a slightly non-standard um, building material that would allow uh, homeowners to build these things much more quickly and um, and therefore somehow displace a little bit the construction process like from the fabric you know, onto the fabricator rather than onto their own site. Now within the kind of plans that have been pre-approved I think there's a lot of open-endedness and this comes back to your question a little bit about aesthetics, like what, what do these things look like? They look a little bit blank, uh, I think on purpose, because they haven't really been fully developed as houses. They've been developed as plants, as processes of construction, as a material that sits inside of the walls that carries the loads. But 
we haven't actually put together a CD set for any of the finishes or fixtures or ways in which the kind of final layer of the architectural rendering, let's say, <laughs> would actually kind of like bring these things into the world. And so there is an open-endedness to the construction process. Well, you know, this is something that strikes me very forcibly about your work at First Office. I can imagine another design practice getting a project like this or starting this process and being very self-conscious about producing imagery that looked fixed, finished, as fancy as possible. And you and Andrew have made the decision not to do that. As you said, you're presenting almost a proto-architecture or a blank of some kind that still, that, that reveal, that basically reflects the limits of the process up until now and does not forecast the end result. And there is a surprising authenticity and honesty and maybe also humility in that willingness to bear a part of a process without being concerned about the ultimate aesthetic package. We've talked about it so much with Andrew. He calls the program and the kinds of things that we've put together not just a standard plan, but a very standard plan, like putting a kind of emphasis on the fact that it's quite standard and that things have been designed to kind of minimum. Um, I think that in terms of the process, we can say that the process has been fully authentic. Like if that's what you're getting at, it's not an authored product, it's an authored process. Um, and it requires collaboration. It requires uh, a lot of entities to kind of coalesce around each building that will come out of it. But it, it, it also anticipates that collaboration and that process, which is to say the process anticipates a kind of collaborative authenticity <laughs> that would then result in a product that we are not quite sure about. Like, we, we don't know what it's going to be because there will be others like builders and uh, potentially even other architects who could piggyback on our standard plan and produce diverse and very different finishes and different types of houses. They would all have the same five plans as their base. They would all have the SIP panel as their structural bones. But um, simply taking photographs of them, you might not recognize one as the sister or the brother of the other. I think in our case, we really... Um, rely on things like interpretation. And, you know, I would put that noun now in relationship, but slightly in opposition to something like authenticity. Because I don't think authenticity would be... We're not equipped, really, to understand the authenticity of a dolmen from 6,000 years ago, nor can we authorize an interpretation exactly <laughs> as they would have wanted us to do, right? Like, we're not speaking on behalf of the people who lived at that time, who built it, who produced communities around these stone structures. When we first came here, we recognized that um, there were multiple early projects by Frank Gehry that um, presented themselves as blank walls to the street front. Um, there were photographs that we discovered by Kathy Opie that took photographs of everyday kind of mini malls. Um, there were projects by Morgan Fisher that painted canvases with everyday interior paint from Benjamin Moore and or some other company. And we see that our work is probably quite influenced by a lot of these people. And the care that we bring to very mundane things like painting a wall or 
turning the corner is simply the process of thinking through design, like, but, but within a very narrow space, I guess, a very narrow space um, that might not be acknowledged or even recognized, like that might not be read by those who are looking at it and, uh, or noticed, which is fine. Like, why should we all notice the buildings that we live in? I think they should be backgrounded. I'm surprised actually that we've developed a kind of opposite tradition here in the States. You're saying that, but on the other hand, you're making, I'm thinking about both the Rude Forms project in the gallery, but then also the ADUs that are part of the process that that gallery show embodied. You're making forms as prepackaged sets of possibilities, understanding that there would be variation in the field, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that are going to be dropped into sites that have there are no dolmens in Los Angeles, and there are no residences left of any prehistoric civilization here. So you're saying you think of architecture as a service, the usual expression is a service profession, but you're making products that are almost an inside joke. Well, they're not necessarily a joke, although there is a lot of inside, I guess, um, to what meets the eye. But that has to do with the fact that we are thinking <laughs> and like we're intellectual kind of uh, human beings within this professional field. Um, and so, of course, there's stories that we tell. And not everybody has to buy into the story or has to be uh, privy to it, I, I think, if... Those who are interested are, of course. We will talk everybody's ear off about what we think about architecture's kind of history, prehistory, interpretation, formal, informal analysis, etc. cetera, uh, te techniques of construction, production, manufacture. But if you don't want to know all of those stories, it's also okay. I don't, it's quite a burden to carry all of those stories around with you and to, to feel that you're buying more than just a sit panel house. Huh, that's funny. I would have I would have looked at it the other way, that gaining access to a discipline with its culture and its expertise would be a worthy gift. It's access. Um, maybe one out of a hundred are interested in something like that, but it's considered access because most of the um, private development, most of housing is there for speculation. And it's not really there um, for storytelling. Um, almost everyone that we speak to has an idea why they want to build an ADU, but then they also very quickly mention the fact that they'd like the property values to go up as well, and they'd like to be able to eventually perhaps sell the property and, um, or, or, or make money on, on this house by other means. And so, uh, when we live and work in a society where everything is valued through money, everything, it is very hard to find an audience that would value stories, <laughs> would va value culture. I mean, even culture is valued through money, um, through the different grants that you have to apply for, through the different means of uh, fabricating, manufacturing, kind of both on the one hand consent and on the other hand an audience. So I think that as long as we live in a kind of capital-driven society, the things that we care about are access. They're access value to, 
to the things that people are actually buying into. Hmm. So, so for you then, there is little role and maybe even no role in architectural production or architectural process uh, for changing that situation. You'd rather work within the capitalist system and sort of have a, a product that is valued by, let's say, the hoi polloi um, in monetary terms, in purely capital terms, and then also have a kind of a side wink to the few that are interested in the excess, as you put it, then have an architecture that is thought to be capable of challenging that system. I think the scale of the field, like the the scales are so different. It's like, a, 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 you know, um, you can't throw one little soldier into a field that has a huge army standing in the middle of it, which is to say, I have voted for Bernie Sanders and would have wanted a more authentic socialism in this country to take over in this day and age. But it's one vote among many. And I can build a small IDU for somebody and it will be hopefully well built and will give a lot of pleasure to that family. But I don't think that we work at first office at the scale to re-educate an entire society or an entire city. Um, that re-education could come from the mayor's office, it could come from Hawthorne, through the distribution of funding to architects uh, who would all work together to produce a very different kind of common ground. But it would require an army of architects who all feel politically and ethically inclined. So what I think I do better, maybe, is education here at Tyark, like educating very many students to also think carefully and think ethically and think politically. And all of those students going out into the world are the little soldiers that will, in their own way, through their own practices, continue to produce that kind of discourse and collaboration and design value. So. My hope is that, yes, I do think it's happening more slowly than you wish, you know, or that you ask, but it's not going to be, again, necessarily through two or three individual buildings that we put out there in the world. It's going to be more through dialogue such as this one that we're engaging in right now and through the classroom, through the studio space, through writing syllabi briefs that actually engage the city and the problems that we're all facing today. I suppose I I I respect that answer and I agree that education and dialogue and the presence of of architects as members of society in a visible way as public intellectuals is perhaps one of the most direct means we have at our disposal for changing or challenging the status quo but I would like you to consider enlisting your architecture, those non-human entities that you produce as other soldiers in the cause. Because I think the time that we're in now, and this is certainly not the first time in history that this has happened, but it does seem to be true today. The time that we're in now requires all our resources, human and non-human alike. And that every little project that you produce an ADU, a gallery piece, a shotgun house, a painting, could be seen as part of a noble effort or an ethical effort in addition to the work human to human. Thank you. I hope so. 
You can learn more about Anna's projects with First Office at their website, firstoff.net. The ARC is a production of the Southern California Institute of Architecture. I'm Marika Trotter, the host and executive producer. Our technical director is Phil Logan. Story and audio editing by R Story Productions. Music by James Thomas Marsh.